Hey y'all, this is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week, our college is playing fair with financial aid and the host of the podcast for Colored Nerds. All right, let's start the show. Hey y'all, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. You know, the last two years or so, and this pandemic, it's all put a big strain on America's higher education system. Lots of students are still taking college classes online, and it's not clear when campus life will get back to normal. And this week, new data showed that college enrollment is down by more than one million students since the pandemic began. With all that bad news, I saw another headline about college this week that kind of floored me. A lawsuit was filed against 16 elite universities, accusing them of price fixing. Yeah, price fixing. The claim is that schools like Georgetown and Yale and Duke, they fix financial aid decisions and admissions decisions in a way that favors wealthy students who can pay full price and limit the aid they offer to students with need. And they do this while working together to create financial aid formulas. That part seems weird to me. Imagine different businesses getting together to set prices for widgets. That's illegal. Yet colleges are allowed to do this. And this practice goes way back. A few colleges got into trouble for something similar over 30 years ago. The Department of Justice said, no, you can't do that. The problem back then was uh, they would talk about individual offers that they were considering for students. And that actually violated. No way. Yeah, antitrust laws. So That is Danielle Douglas-Gabriel. She is the national higher education reporter for The Washington Post. She told me that back then, in the early 90s, Congress got involved. Congress decided that they would create this exemption to the antitrust law that said, hey, if you promise to be need-blind in your admissions, meaning that you will look at applicants without any consideration of their ability to pay, then, all right, you guys can get together and figure out some guidelines as to how to go about offering financial aid. Danielle and I talked about this new case how colleges might be violating the terms of that old antitrust exemption, and whether higher education itself, with all these problems, is at a turning point. But first, she explained how all of this works. I think the broader issue is if you are a a student who is the son or daughter of someone who can afford to donate quite a bit of money to the school, even if your grades are okay and your, your test scores are okay, the idea that you could potentially bring in more money and bring in more prestige because of who your parents are could get you a leg up in admissions at some of these schools. And that violates the tenets of the law. How this kind of harms low and middle income students is that because wealthier students can pay the full cost of school or almost full cost for in many instances, they are more attractive to these schools because that means that there's less financial aid dollars that the institutions have to donate or dedicate to to them and their needs. And what this means is that if these if this lawsuit is correct, these schools were potentially colluding to keep their financial aid artificially low, right? Making the calculation that if we only give, say, $10,000 a year, when we actually individually could afford to give more, oh. uh, then they'll come because they're not going to get a better offer from you because we're all wow. offering the same thing. <laughs> Okay, so let me make sure that I'm hearing this right. Hypothetically, under these allegations, 
a working class or a middle class family could have a student that gets into one of these elite colleges, but because the college might be more interested in a legacy student or a rich student who can pay full tuition, these schools might collude to keep down the aid they give that working class kid so they're less likely to go and the rich kid is more likely to go? In part, yeah. Wow. Now, be, to be sure, these schools are saying that's, they're not doing that. They're saying, no, that's not true. We are very generous in our financial aid to low-income and middle-income students. And in a lot of cases, that's true. But if you start to look at what percentage of their overall student body population mm-hmm. actually is constitutes middle or low income, it's fairly huh. small. We're talking about the teens, huh. right, in terms of like 10% yeah. or 15% yeah. of, of the population not half, <laughs> certainly not half, yeah. certainly not even a quarter. Yeah. So when I read these stories about all these colleges getting together to potentially trade notes on things like financial aid given to students, it seems incredibly not okay. <laughs> I think of other industries or types of work. It's like I'd be very mad if Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts got together once a month to discuss coffee prices. And I think it's kind of illegal. Why are colleges allowed to do this? How do they defend this practice? Well, you know, it is illegal. (laughs) That's why this exemption (laughs) carved out uh, these schools if they were to adhere to this system of not thinking about people's ability to pay. You know, when when the exemption was was created, I think Barney Frank, who was in Congress at the time, said we need to be concerned about a student's ability to do the work, not where their parents came from, not how much money Mm -hmm. they make. And so Mm -hmm. these schools said, yeah, okay, we agree to that. But in doing so, they may be creating a system that actually works to the disadvantage of the people that they purport to help. Mm. You know, also what we see happening at the same time uh, are prices for elite colleges just going up a lot, period. Um, How much does this collaboration between colleges over things like financial aid and admissions contribute to that? Or are rising elite college tuition prices a whole nother thing? I mean, you know, if if you were to believe what this lawsuit is saying, then there there is a, a direct link to, to these sorts of things. It's also a part because of decades of state disinvestment has shifted the cost burden from the government, from states and federal government over to families. And I think once they opened that door, it was a lot easier to justify a continuation of that trend. And that's where we are now. There was a point in time in the 70s and 80s where the state would pay up to 70% of the cost in terms Mm -hmm. of to educate students. That is no longer the case and hasn't been for years. And we're not, you know, there is often a lot of focus on the private elite schools and the really selective schools but it is costing families, uh, goodness, hundreds of thousands of dollars to send their kids to state schools, to just regional school. schools, not just not just yeah. the public flagships, but the regional schools. And that's an untenable and unsustainable situation. So without more government support on the state level or other level, uh, without more subsidies for working class and middle class kids who can pay some but not full tuition at some of these schools... How else can schools subsidize those students and make that sustainable? I mean, I'm sitting here thinking about 
my time in undergrad doing work study, like, what's the fix, like, in the meantime, <laughs> for those kids who can pay some but not all? I mean, certainly, you know, at more well-heeled private institutions and some public ones, I think you're seeing a lot more exploration of uh, increasing institutional dollars, more scholarship dollars. You know, mm. there were mm. stories about Ohio State, Smith College, instituting these no-loan policies, right? Promising students, we will find a way mm. to ensure that you don't have to borrow, or if you do, it'll be as minimal as possible. And they're doing that through fundraising. They're doing that through uh, philanthropy and such. And I have a sense that more schools are going to have to look at ways to attract students, to bring students in without saddling them with crushing or crippling debt when they graduate. Yeah. Well, because a lot of these schools have massive endowments, some over a billion dollars, and you walk on these campuses, it's a country club. And part of me is like, y'all probably somewhere got enough money to keep all these kids in here for free. But that's just me. That's just me. Well, that is the argument uh, that the school, a lot of the <laughs> students who attend those schools make all the time. I mean, if you talk to a student at Yale... They'll say, yeah, this school can afford to pay for all of us. If you talk to a student at Harvard, they'd be like, this school is actually a hedge fund that has a nice library. They could afford to pay for all of us. <laughs> so, you know, that pressure, as much as the schools say that they are trying to adhere to their mission and they care about being able to educate diverse populations, I do believe that that pressure coming from the outside, coming not only from students and alumni and legislatures and such questioning how are these schools using this money that they have is they're feeling it. Oh, yeah. So all of this is happening as the pandemic is still raging and you got a bunch of college students paying quarter, half full price, tens of thousands of dollars a year to go to college in, in their parents' homes, right? And it's raising even bigger questions about whether college and elite college is worth it. And I'll talk with people who have college students in their family or are paying for higher ed right now. And sometimes they're saying without saying, I think this might be a scam. I think that like this was not worth it. And increasingly the argument around higher education and student loan debt and the forgiveness of debt and lawsuits like these, it feels like a higher number of people are questioning the worth of this stuff. Are you seeing that in your reporting? Like, are more and more Americans over it? Expensive, expensive college. <laughs> I mean, they are. There, there, there are people who are definitely disillusioned by the cost, by the debt. But at the same time, they are lured by the prestige, the possibility, you know, of mm. what uh, a degree from one of these elite schools would mean for their life and for the lives of their families. In order to really significantly lower the cost of education, this our system would have to strip down all the frilly things that we're used to and really yeah. go bare bones. If you look at places like Germany and elsewhere where people are always like, look at the European model of education, they don't require folks to take on all this debt where they have nothing. You get a class and a teacher. <laughs> Financial, you, I mean, know you know what I mean? Like, that's, that's all you need. That's, that's all, all you, you really need. need. But, but we're so used to our nice student activity centers and, you know, decent looking dorms and all. But I don't know. I, want, I, I just wonder, are people willing to make those trade-offs so that they don't have to spend their 20s and part of their 30s Come just, on. Come on. you know, burdened with debt. 
Thanks again to Danielle Douglas-Gabriel. She reports on higher education for The Washington Post. Coming up, I talk with Eric Eddings and Brittany Luce. They're the hosts of the podcast For Colored Nerds. We talk about what I am calling an era of black abundance. This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax and the Love Your Car Guarantee. Car buying can feel overwhelming, but it doesn't have to be that way. CarMax gives you the time you need to make the right choice. Take up to 24 hours for your test drive. Once you buy, enjoy a 30-day money-back guarantee up to 1,500 miles. Learn more and start shopping at CarMax.com. The new Love Your Car guarantee from CarMax. Car buying reimagined. Y'all know that I talk about TV a lot on this show. And one of the things I've noticed watching TV the last few years, especially during the pandemic, especially during this era of peak streaming, is that there's a lot of black TV and movies to consume right now. Insecure. It's so great that everyone we know is actually making decisions. Atlanta. With our new initiative, we believe racism will be done by 2024. Blackish. Summer of Soul. Are you ready, black people? Bad trip. Passing. Things aren't always what they seem. I could go on. A lot of this content, it is considered prestige. And audiences of all backgrounds like it. I've taken to calling this creative period that we are in right now an era of black abundance. More black content to consume and more black creators making that content. I like it. For this next segment, I'm going to talk about that with two podcasters who have also been following this trend, Brittany Luce and Eric Eddings. In a world gripped by questions of famine, pandemic, and culture wars, come the most anticipated creative project of 2021. We are back. Yes, we're back. I'm Brittany. I'm Eric. And this is For Colored Nerds. It's a show all about black culture and the conversations black people have when no one else is listening. My first question from one colored nerd to another, what is the last conversation you two had that you wouldn't have had in front of other people, mm. a.k.a. white people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just finished recording. <laughs> Tell me everything. I think a lot of the things are, we used to be maybe afraid of is to, like, sometimes critique blackness. We're not even critique blackness, but critique, like... Black art, yeah. Yeah, black art mm. or aspects of black culture that people sometimes are afraid to touch. Yeah, because, like, you get the, like, wait, mm-hmm. wait, if we don't go see Red Tails, it always yeah. comes back to Red Tails. Oh, Lord. <laughs> or the Jackie Robinson movie. Or ja- Remember yeah, that one? You know. Yeah. And so, you know, I think uh, there, there could be a hesitancy sometimes to, like, you know, say, like, oh, I'm glad this thing got made and, like, some black people won, but maybe I didn't, like, dig these parts of it. I think a lot of my friend group, we struggled with that. But I think mm. it's been so exciting to, like, challenge our own culture with each other and mm-hmm. kind of ignore the fact that, you know, for it's worth it, a lot of white people are listening in. <laughs> <laughs> the white people who listen to this show have decided to practice allyship, and um, I think they're a cut you. above <laughs> some other yeah. folks. So they can take it. <laughs> they can take it. Well, thank you. Thank, we appreciate it. <laughs> I will say it is an interesting moment uh, to think about how we discuss black art amongst just black people or in wider company because there's just been an abundance, it feels like recently, 
of black art to consume, especially on screen. And every few months, I feel like I don't know if the opinion I have on a thing is the right opinion. Mm. And I'm going to just be honest right now and speak my truth that a recent black cowboy western, what was it called? Harder They Fall? The Harder They Fall. (laughs) Man, old devil, this is going to be Buck's last day amongst the living. I um I have some notes. <laughs> and, I don't, and it's like, can I say that? Because everyone we love is in that movie. Mm-hmm. It is decidedly black. Yeah. But overall, mm-hmm. got to say, it felt bloated and disjointed. Yeah. Can I say that? I think it's the thing. I think you can say that. I think that you should say that. But I also, I think that like the issue is that because like black art is always, Hmm. its existence is always so precarious in the marketplace, not in the world, but in the marketplace. So that if like somebody, let's say is, you know, making a film, making a television show, there's this fear imagined or real. There's this fear that critiquing it is going to keep the person from being able to make another film or Mm -hmm. keep them from getting another season of television or keep the actor Mm -hmm. from getting another job. That's a, not necessarily true. And B, I wish that like the onus was taken off of black people and black mm-hmm. audiences and put onto mm-hmm. like the people who greenlight things. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> obviously there's audiences out there that want to watch this stuff and engage with it. And part of engaging is critiquing. And even mm-hmm. if it's whether it's in a loving way or a way that's like, I can't stand this. <laughs> yeah. I like also want black creators to be able to have the room to be able to make things I, that are yeah. okay. Yeah. Trust me. I think my voice is important. Nobody is going to stop Idris Elba or Regina King from getting another check because I said no. Yeah, that the writing could be a little better. No, that's true. But Eric, believe in yourself. <laughs> <laughs> believe in yourself. Your right. voice matters. Although, on that note of TV and movies doing some stuff well and some stuff maybe not well, mm-hmm. one show that I think all three of us would agree on, and I know that y'all had an episode in the Four Colored Nerds feed recently, all about this uh-huh. show. Is Love Life season two. Yes. It was just so doing it for me. It worked. Agreed. The music so was great. The wardrobe was great. The acting and the writing was great. It feels very divorcey in here. That's because I got a divorce. No, no, no. It feels the like- chemistry between the main characters was mm-hmm. pitch perfect. What about you? My situation is different. How so? Because it's my business. <laughs> I don't know how they did it, but it worked for me. Oh, same. I think same to your point, like when I watched it, I was like, I felt challenged. I felt entertained. It felt like people I knew. I, it's rare you hit that bingo. Mm. And, and that actually is the type of thing that makes us excited, to, I think, to critique other things more because it's like, hey, y'all, we, you know, we can do things like this. Yeah, uh, we, we can, can have do, nice things. <laughs> we can have, we nice, can have things. nice things. <laughs> yeah. One thing I've been wondering in this moment of like peak streaming is whether we're in another era of what I call black abundance, black creative abundance. Like, I remember the 90s where, like, half of all the sitcoms were black sitcoms. And they were just everywhere. And everyone had a sitcom. And it was just, like, you could see black people on TV a lot. And then it felt like that stopped for a while as we moved into the prestige TV era. And it was, like, Mm -hmm. The Sopranos and all the knockoffs of of that idea of a show. But now, with the rise of streaming, it feels like I'm seeing more black and brown content i mean there's more content period yeah but does it feel like there's something special going on with black creative content and there's maybe an age or an era of 
abundance again. I don't know. I want to believe that. <laughs> I think that we are in an era of black abundance. I like that. I might yeah. use that in my own Let's life. Let's speak that. Let's <laughs> like, speak that into existence. Will 2022 be my era of black abundance? I don't know. Um, but I do think that there is, I do think that there is something happening right now as far as, you know, like you mentioned, there's more content on television specifically than there has probably ever been. And yeah. also um, television studios have a more captive audience, at least in the States, um, than they have had in uh, quite some time as far mm, as people. Yeah. That's my main form of entertainment and socializing. <laughs> yes, you can't exactly. leave the house. <laughs> you can't leave the house. Um, and uh, I think even one night this week, maybe it was Tuesday night or something like that, I was talking to my parents on the phone. And my dad actually remarked, he's like, you know, every show on TV right now, it's like a black show. And I was like, yeah, there's a lot mm. of black stuff. He's like, no, right this second. He's like, blackish, <laughs> this is us. He's like, uh, he's like, every channel I turn, it's black yeah. people on the TV. And he was like, they're putting Bless it all it. at once. He's like, they're putting it all <laughs> oh. on at once. <laughs> it was a conspiracy against black people, like, actually. I like where you're going. Um, but no, I do think that there there is a moment right now of black abundance. But I think, A, there could always be more. I yeah. sometimes wonder, like, if we were to break down the numbers, would, like, the actual uh, ratio of, like, black, like, primarily black shows to all of the content that's currently streaming right now or on television right now, would that actually bear out? Or does this just feel like abundance because we've been starved um, of, of more, of greater amount of mainstream black entertainment for so long? But yeah. I do think there's something happening now. I also think that some of the creators that are coming to the fore are really interesting. Um, with Grey's Anatomy probably primed to end you know, soon and... Uh, and also oh, that with that show ain't gonna uh, end. That show ain't gonna end. It'll <laughs> you're right. Okay, end. you're right. Yeah, it's like General Hospital. Uh, but also with, uh, but basically, Grey's Anatomy is now become a legacy program, right? Mm -hmm. And and like you've already got Scandal and How to Get Away with Murder behind us. Like Shonda and Kenya Barris and all these other huge like, and even Tyler Perry to a certain degree, they're no longer climbing that ladder of success yeah. that maybe they were climbing earlier in the two thousands. Yeah. Um, there's more yeah. uh, younger black creators who are coming who are like coming from. YouTube popularity, you know, like Issa Rae and also like Quinta Brunson, who's the creator and star of Abbott Elementary. Okay, so if the store has 10 potatoes, right, and you take away two of them, how many potatoes would the store have left? Janine, what did I say about taking my potatoes from the lunchroom? But visual learning is so much better. Well, guess what? Now you have zero potatoes. Um, it's kind of interesting to see people come up and kind of carve out their own niche and sort of make their own way in an industry that has typically done things in a lot more traditional fashion. Yeah. I mean, Shonda Rhimes and Kenya Barris, just for two examples, if you go back and you look at them old episodes of America's Next Top Model, you're going to see Kenya Barris's <laughs> name as a producer, okay? I did I mean, not was in know the trenches. That. Yeah, yes, absolutely. That's because he and Tyra are childhood friends. That's how she popped up in the show. Yeah. So yeah, so I, there's a lot of exciting things going on right now as far as like black television and black entertainment. And, and it's across genres. Like we're seeing it in superhero, we're seeing it in romantic comedy and in drama and everything else. If I could just also to add, I actually think that this might be more uh, permanent than we think. Now, I think it's still some precariousness in terms of what gets made and how it gets there. That We still yeah. got a lot of road to hoe. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> we are going to take a break and uh, then play my favorite game, Who Said That? But as we close, I do want to give one more note in this era of abundance and black abundance and all kinds of creative mm -hmm. abundance. I don't care how abundant our age becomes or is. No movie needs to be over 90 minutes. <laughs> I mean it. I'll take it to my grave. With that, let's go to break. <laughs> but am I right, though? Come on. Come on. No. Now. I, some, a couple, I think. Uh, 
Support for NPR and the following message come from Best Fiends, the perfect brain-boosting puzzle game to keep you entertained in any situation, like the DMV. Best Fiends turns spare moments into perfect opportunities to keep your brain excited and challenged. With thousands of fun puzzles and more added all the time, your brain may never run out of fun, unlike the DMV. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. We're back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders, joined by two of my favorite culture vultures. Introduce yourselves. My name is Eric Eddings. I'm a co-host of For Colored Nerd. Hi, my name is Brittany Luce, and I am also co-host of For Colored Nerds. <laughs> I love it. So we're about to play my favorite game. And usually all the contestants are worried they might not know any of the answers. But I kind of feel like knowing you both and your show and your Twitter feeds Y'all know most of the things pop culture, so I think you'll both do well. You ready to play? This game is called Who Said That? Who said that? Who said that? All right, I'm ready. I try to stay up. I'm ready. I'm nervous, but I'm ready. People still get nervous. It's so funny. This is the lowest stakes game ever. (laughs) Anywho, here's the quote. It was uh, on Instagram this week from somebody famous. My formula is easier to follow. Drink more large cosmos. Stay up late watching addictive streaming series. Stay in bed in the morning playing Sudoku instead of reading a good book. Spend more time <laughs> safely with people you love. Who said that? Ina Garden. Ina Garden. Yes. Wow. Yes. <laughs> I was going to be like, uh, uh, Dionne Warwick? Uh, Cher? I don't know. No. <laughs> but, but taste, good taste. No, she said it in a response to an... Instagram post done by Reese Witherspoon. Like wow. she's sort of trying to take everyone's temperature and see um, what new healthy habits they were trying really to adopt in 2022. Way. So if you're doing something that's 1% better for you every single day, you're going to get 1% better every day. If you're doing And I'm with Ina. I'm like, Ina was like, look, I, like, and Reese was like, I'm going to drink more water. I'm trying to read for 60 to 90 minutes a day. Da-da-da-da. And Ina was like, I'm trying to drink more I actually stay up like playing Sudoku and watching TV and I lay in my bed in the morning and don't do anything. And that's all I can do. And I'm like, I didn't do any resolutions this year. I am not trying to improve anything. Yeah. Yeah. I'm alive. Yeah. That's, that's good. I love though this, like there's this new era of celebrity culture where celebrities just will creep into other celebrities' comments mm-hmm. on social media as if they're a fan. It's yeah. so strange and unsettling to me, but I love it. Like, imagine Ina Garden, a very prominent celebrity chef who mm-hmm. need not say anything unless she wants to, mm-hmm. scrolling through Instagram, <laughs> sees Wreath Witherspoon talking about New Year's resolutions, and then Ina <laughs> says, you know what? I'm going to get in this fight. That is just, I love it. I love it. (laughs) That's the part of social media that I think you can really kind of appreciate. The thing about it is it goes left because probably after Ina's uh, comment, there was like 65 replies that probably got (laughs) increasingly dark as you went down. Yeah, yeah. Um, All right, here is the second quote. I was Patrizia, but I knew I had to say goodbye to her. Large swarms of flies kept following me around, and I truly began to believe that she had sent them. I was ready to let her go. Who said that? Say that again. Oh, my God. Like, <laughs> is that, I you, was, you were, 
It's a famous musician slash actress who received a Golden Globe nomination for a movie that everyone knows. Oh, as well. actually, now I okay. Yes, Wait. I know this. Sorry, say it. It's say Lady it. Gaga. It's Lady, it's Gaga. Lady Gaga. Oh yes. my gosh, and that ttracks. I can't. Well, actually, still Did haven't seen, seen this House of Gucci. Did y'all see House of Gucci? No, I haven't, I haven't seen it yet. To watch on, it's a I'm comedy. On a flight today. It's a comedy, not a drama. You're just gonna laugh the whole movie. It's so absurd. <laughs> it's so absurd. The thing, the thing that I'll say that is confusing about Lady Gaga in this role in particular, um, mm. the only thing, I'm excited to see her in it. I think she's probably going to be amazing. But she said, I think I've read that she went method as uh, Patricia, is that is how you pronounce her name? As, yeah, Patricia, as her yeah. character for a matter of years. And I just <laughs> Sounds <don't>, like Gaga. <laughs> and I'm just like, how does that matter? She's so work? extra. She's so extra. <laughs> so for those who haven't seen the movie... Uh, Lady Gaga plays Patrizia. I don't consider myself to be a particularly ethical person, but I am fair. Patrizia was accused of hiring a hitman to kill one of the Gucci's, and she was found guilty of that. Can you keep a secret? Father, son, and house of Gucci. Something I do, I will say that I do love about Lady Gaga is that she commits. Uh, yes, she commits. She to commits, the bit. and she commits to the bit. She carries the bit. I I think that like if you were to like peep into her window when she's in the bed at night, she would be dreaming in Patrizia's Italian accent. I think that she is just she, she does not turn it off. Yeah. And it's like people are talking about Jeremy Strong from Succession, like in his method acting and how it feels kind of like dark and strange. Um, but I'm really into Lady Gaga's method of method acting, which is just like really kooky and fun yeah. for me to watch. <laughs> uh, who got that point? I did. Eric. It's tied up. I did. Uh-oh. I did. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. He said, Uh-oh. I did. <laughs> I'm here. I'm back in the game. You see. Let's see. You're back in the game. Let's see what happens next. Uh, this one, you're not going to know the name of the person, but tell me what this is that, it, that this quote comes from. Vaccinate. Don't wait. You got to vaccinate in the Lone Star State. Oh, yes. Vaccination oh my is so great. Vaccinate me all day long. Vaccinate your daddy mm. and mom. Vaccinate me at yeah. the party. A vaccine I dream. What are these lyrics from? I don't this remember, but I know it. Is from, I think it was Dallas. Basically like a community board meeting or some sort of like political meeting where you could come in and get um, a few minutes of time. And... This gentleman, I don't know his name. Yes, uh, he yes. shows up in, uh, I think, nurses scrubs. Yeah, and yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, with uh, surgical masks that he's holding and kind of waving around like those like flags at a ticker tape parade. Yes, yes. Uh, and he sings one of the most just well written, lovely, you know, songs. The only thing he's missing is like a DJ Mustard beat. Yeah. Doctor Fauci, give me that ouchie. I want it in my body. Vaccinate me too. Go to the party. Eric, oh, yes, you got that point. So you won the game, but I want to explain the rest of this weird vaccine song. That quote comes from Alex Stein. He was speaking at a Dallas City Council meeting open mic this week. And I'm not sure if he meant it or it was a parody or a joke because I think he's been a reality star before. But he performed a rap about getting vaccinated. And the rap came complete with some dance moves that had him dousing himself in hand sanitizer. My favorite lyric from this vaccine song was, Dr. Fauci, give me that ouchie. 
I mean, come on now. Yes. Come on, Library of Congress, baby. <laughs> One more time. Vaccinate your mind. Vaccinate your body. Vaccinate your life if you vaccination party. I love y'all. Peace. Give me, hey, give me that ouchie three times. You know? Oh, yeah. I need, <laughs> it's about to be four times. Exactly, right? And you know, it's so like... I tweeted this video this week and I, and like jaws were dropping because you have to watch it like five times in a row. It's that absurd. But then for a second, I was trying to like fact check this person and see if this is real or fake or what is he. And mm-hmm. then finally I was like, I don't care. I just want to feel joy about this song <laughs> and I don't want him to get like milkshake yeah. ducked. Please don't tell me. Don't yeah, send me the, the update. Yeah, don't update me. <laughs> Let me have this joy. <laughs> Anywho, we got to wrap this game up uh, with two contestants who are both fully vaccinated. Drum roll, please. The winner of this week's edition of Who Said That? Sorry, Brittany. It's Eric. Mm. Sorry. This is the first time for Mm. everything. Feels good. (laughs) Feels good to be back where I'm supposed to be. The winner circle. Ooh. Okay. See, this is the thing. And this this is what I live with. And this is what I live with. Thanks again to my guests, Brittany Luce and Eric Eddings. They're the two hosts of the podcast, Four Colored Nerds. Check it out wherever you get your podcast. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week, listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions. Hi, Sam. This is Jordan from Louisville, Kentucky. The best thing that happened to me this week actually happened today. And it was the opportunity to take my dog, Poppy, on a walk in this crisp winter air to my favorite local coffee shop. It was just lovely, and I really enjoyed it. Hi, Sam. It's Annie from Queens. The best thing that happened to me this week was that I found out that I have four genetically healthy embryos from eggs that I froze five years ago that are ready to be implanted for a future pregnancy. And I'm really excited. Hey Sam, this is Amy from Atlanta, Georgia. And the best part of my week has been picking up the game American Truck Simulator with my friends who I can't see right now due to the surge in Omicron. So it's been really fun learning about places I look forward to seeing in person someday, learning a lot about trucking while my friends erupt in laughter, watching me try and unwrap myself from a light pole or all of us traveling together on a big road trip. Hey Sam, it's Mandy from Brooklyn, New York. And the best thing to happen to me this week was that after 10 weeks on strike, the student worker union I'm a part of secured a tentative agreement with our institution and ended the strike. It's been a long 10 weeks, and I'm really looking forward to catching up on sleep, my dissertation research, and time with my partner, dog, and friends. Thank you so much for all you do. Thanks so much for your podcast. It's a joy to listen to. Thanks again, Sam. Appreciate all that you do. Thanks to all the listeners you heard there, Jordan, Anne, Amy, and Mandy. Listeners, don't forget you can share the best part of your week at any point throughout any week. We love hearing from y'all. Just record yourself and send the voice memo to us via email, samsanders at npr.org, samsanders at npr.org. All right, this week's episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Janae West, Anjali Sastry-Kerbacek, Andrea Gutierrez, and Liam McBain. Our intern is Asia Drain, and it's her first week here. Welcome, Asia. She's already off to a great start. She has uh, named herself here at work the Fresh Princess of Bel-Air. I endorse. 
Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. And our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. All right, listeners, till next time, be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon.